Jesus Christ, where were you when his knee was on his Okay, welcome to the show. I hope you guys welcome. are enjoying that new Emory song. We'll talk more about it in a little bit, but quite heavy. Toby, I think you did a great job in screaming on that one. Well, I appreciate it. I'm still feeling the effects of it. My 44-year-old <laughs> body can't handle screaming like it used to, for sure. Ooh, it felt kind of cathartic to get out there and rock. I got to go be in the room with Dave Powell and just really blast it in our new studio and all that kind of stuff. So it was really, it was kind of a treat to work on. But we'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. Today's show is sponsored by Brook Linen. Brook Linen makes my favorite sheets, towels, comforters, and loungewear. You can get 10% off your first order and free shipping when you use the code BADCHRISTIAN at brooklinen.com that's brooklinen.com promo code bad christian okay deep breath here we go so we are back last week we did the episode where we aired a conversation about that well there's a group of bc clubbers talking about racial tension the protests george floyd and we just thought it would be a great opportunity here people having a real conversation that doesn't happen much these days it's mostly bad mm-hmm. when you go to social media it's just i hate you you hate me i you hate me i hate you all that stuff you know you everybody's on their platform saying what they believe to the masses even though it's only like four people right. probably paying attention yeah, so totally. this is neat that it was a small group of people that actually you know somewhat know each other there's a real community within the bc club and they just had a really good conversation we thought we'd air it Yes, yeah, so if that was your first time listening to the podcast, welcome back. We'll get a little bit back to our normal tone now, which is kind of goofing off. I think Toby and I see this podcast as guys hanging around at the gas station talking in the morning with the newspaper or getting a biscuit at Hardee's or something like that, where we just kind of, you know. It's funny because you're shit. thinking of old people, but I <laughs> old think. Old people, yeah. But the, the generation <laughs> after us is thinking like Jay and Silent Bob. <laughs> yeah. I don't, yeah, it's like Jay and Silent and Bob I, outside. I wonder of the which gas one station. I am. <laughs> I've never been called the silent one. But no, either, that's so. true. Or, or, or the big one. <laughs> or the big one. Neither one had been put on me before. Um, we've got a cool ad that I want to play here. Uh, this is a pre-made commercial, but it's from a band, and they're called Empty Atlas. And I think this is cool because they came to us, and we do this ad directly. And that means we could just do this more often. I don't know why we don't, but thank you to you guys for reaching out and wanting to feature your music in the show. If anybody else has a band that would like to feature their music in the show or any business at all, you know, we'd be down to talk about it. You can just email Reva at hello at Bad Christian, and we'll get it in the pipeline and, and figure it out. But anyway, let's roll this commercial real quick. I promise maximal effort from me. There will never be an end to all the blood and sweat I'll end to make it work But I'll get where I need We'll send a word for you Wouldn't burden you details you won't read Hey, this is Micah from the band Empty Atlas. You're listening to Maximal off our new album Kairos, out everywhere June 12th. You can pre-order now on carfromstonerecords.com and follow us on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you listen to hear it on day one. Here's a sneak preview of the album. Find Empty Atlas on Instagram to let us know what you think. Can't go back so I go over Overthinking everything Is it insane to hope it's gonna change Clear up Make 
We're Empty Atlas. Thanks for listening to a sneak preview of our new album, Kairos, coming June 12th. You can pre-order it now on carfromstonerecords.com. I was thinking about this, Toby. Uh, the times that we're in are just so insane that I thought of it in these ter- in these epic terms, like uh, like if you just went back through history, like they say history rhymes or something like that. But yeah. I was thinking, what if I brought to you a prophecy nine months ago? So just, you know, Prophet Carter, they call right. him. Right. I mean, that's, that's what most people know me as, Prophet Carter. Anyway, yep. what, if I, what if Prophet Carter came to you in September of 2019 and said, I have a prophecy for you. I said, nine months from now, you and all of humanity will have been plunged into the first ever global lockdown as a result of pandemic and disease. And in those days, there arose a new religion that if you join, you'll be granted freedom from the lockdown. That's where we are. <laughs> well, that happened. So are, is this the apocalypse, dude? It might be. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how if things get really crazy, you'll think it's end times for sure. Yeah, that's true. And yeah, and I'm not really making I'm not making fun of everything. I'm just saying I call this situation right now that we're in something like the great realignment. I've got a couple of terms I want to put out there into the world. So if they catch on, like I had the great hangover, I want to explain that one too. But the realignment here of everything that's happening is so fast and rapid. Like you remember gay marriage? Like that one changed pretty quick. Yeah. Well, this one has got... Once it started rolling, it changed quick, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was super slow, super delinquent, right. super outdated, and then all of a sudden there was a big alignment shift, and everybody all of a sudden schooled with gay marriage. So I feel that it's obviously true that there's a religious element to all the things going on now and anti-racism and all that stuff, and I'm not using that pejoratively. I'm just saying it's a giant awakening and realignment and people trying to see who's real and who's serious and what's not not genuine you know all right. that kind of stuff is all going on and it does feel like there's a religious type movement and alignments just changing a lot and then i just can't get over the all the people i'm seeing at the protest and you know amidst the pandemic and the, the giantness of the crowds and if you think about it through that lens you've got it like there's a new religion out there and if it's for the right cause you now have freedom from this lockdown where you're allowed to go out for that reason alone which all that is pretty serious stuff if you think about it i'm not saying it's wrong or right there's no i'm not judging it at all but isn't it really crazy that there is like from a point of view of somebody who told you everybody's locked down but you can go out if you ha- have the right heart yeah or or is it that some, yeah don't you isn't that happening kind of if you have the right motives, but right. That, but then, but that still is, is bothersome to me for all the people that just shit on everybody who went outside without a mask, or yeah. you know, like I mean, I'm I'm pro social distancing. I wear masks, all that stuff. But I just hated seeing it online where people like I saw some videos like a lady with her kid at a grocery store. And everybody made her leave and just screamed at her and yelled. And the kid took off mm-hmm. running just because. They, she didn't have a mask on. I was like, God, you know, and a lot of those people probably were at the protest two weeks later. Mm-hmm. Now, you know I, what I mean? I really it's, think there's a needle to thread here, but I just can't help it coming from the Mars Hill cult that I was in and the way that even this podcast and its mission originally uh, comes out of a religious thing and has had a mission and a cult-like thing. That's what I think that's what the deconstruction movement itself also seems to mimic a lot the religious thing that it came from. That was a criticism we heard pretty early on 
oh, that's just the same. You're just the opposite of this other movement that you're trying to be this other movement. And I didn't think that at the time, but I kind of see that as true now. So I'm trying to thread some needle here where I'm saying a lot of the activity that we're seeing now, again, feels like more religion. But I am not saying that negatively. I'm saying I am participating in the new religion. I'm just trying to be aware of it and draw the parallels. And you know what I mean? Like I've made the same mistakes. I'm prone to believe. I'm a big believer, you know? I can believe. I can join things. I can get swept up in movements. So I'm trying I would I think it's gonna be the kind of thing where we're gonna have to really look at it. And I hope people can Take it for what it is, but on this religion, I'm thinking I'm probably not going to necessarily go all in and try to be a deacon or a leader for once, though. I'm going to just sit in the back of church, go almost every Sunday, participate, be involved. I'll tithe, definitely. I'm in, but I don't want to be all the way in. So I want to be. I want to be a little bit more of one of the the back row. Back well, I think that's people. where we're headed right now. <laughs> like, like I mean, what the the biggest thing? I know it sounds cheesy, but I keep thinking this. Like, is is it you know, uh, is this a movement or is it just a moment? Like so many other times, you know what I mean? There's there's been mm-hmm. these little moments where you thought maybe something's really going to happen, and and I I'm a little concerned like that everybody's going to get back to work and just let this go, or like is, is this potential for a real revolution? I mean, some we need a, some real change. I, I'm really. There's part of me that's really worried. Will we just go back to normal? Like, if COVID doesn't get that bad, what if hospitalizations aren't that bad? Everybody, goes, well, I'll just get back to work, and you know, it, I can, I, I can accept a certain amount of shit or whatever. I, I just don't want us to do that anymore. I personally don't want to do. No, that No, I, I don't think so. I think this is going to stick. I mean, I, I mean, I think I this hope one's so, but stick. I don't know. I don't. I mean, why? Why would you? I don't be mean so... cure everything. I just mean. St- I think this move. I think. I mean, don't you think fundamentally that realignment has really occurred here is what I'm saying. I'm just saying, think about all my 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 hypothesis here is that Christianity got super fucked up over a very long period of time, but it was the only game in town for, for, for many people who tried to yeah. care and be good and do right and seek justice. Christianity had been the only game in town. It was really the only way to be the good person for a lot of people where they grew up and when they grew up. But now we have maybe more newer, updated, better ways to be good people and seek justice and help while Christianity got, has been, you know, it's been co-opted by a lot of bad forces and compromised in a lot of ways. So now there's this opportunity. I think everybody that's been doing deconstruction it's pretty much now been picked up by this new movement of justice. You know, I'm not calling anything specific, or and I don't mean it pejorative. I'm saying it is good, but I am suggesting that possibly it's not about deconstruction so much as that. There's no reason to uh, to abandon everything we know about religion. I'm saying religion kind of is this function. This is why we have religion. To yeah. is that they're all they're always start out of social movements for good to make progress. Like if you think about Christianity, it started as a social movement of justice. That's 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 how they start and then you go way farther in the future they can go good or they can go bad. But that is the function. I mean, yeah. those are the tools that we have. I don't think it's negative to say that this is we've we're, we're all swept up in some religious type of awakening that is necessary and probably the right way for a, a human civilization to handle things. Like that those are yeah. just t- the tools that are kind of built into our sociology and our our thing all the way through so well i think that one of the things that i love like about the protest is that it feels uh there like there is feels like so much authenticity that everybody has been trapped in their homes for months 
worried about the spread of this, of killing, you know, mm-hmm. it may, if not themselves, uh, taking a risk for themselves, but for their family members, their older family members, you know, their their moms, their dads, aunts, uncles, and stuff like that. And But this felt like, uh, seeing the protest, people were, it, the, the heart of what I, I think faith in God and, and uh, what Jesus stands for, uh, whether you believe in as the real person or just even the idea of Jesus would be, it's worth risking Mm-hmm. things and taking taking on, risk on personal and risk right. to stand up for something that you believe in and belief, that, that right. has been really powerful for me watching this and seeing this and learning from this and seeing all that so you're right in the sense that the if it's a religion or a movement i don't know if religion is the I, right word maybe it is it probably well, does in the fall long into term looked back on it that's what you things that start a certain way that nobody says let's start a religion but at some but, point uh, it may but be religion gets that, cloudy you know? because it's talking about a, a a spiritual figure that maybe or something. There's a, a spiritual figure attachment there. And well, this I'm not feels talking about anything like supernatural. Movement. I'm just saying sociologically. Yeah, like yeah. if you just look at religions, how they arose at different points in human history over across a hundred thousand right. years, it's this type of thing that is like that. It's not science. It's not politics. It's it's belief. And there's you know there's all, all the things. If you wanted to go through the language of it, and I think probably you'll see this a lot. Uh, and maybe we'll talk about it. I feel particularly in a position to analyze it as such, given that I know that I'm a believer who is often given to belief in things and taking pious action towards principled good aims that I believe in. That makes yeah. me prone to religious activity, and that is what I'm experiencing now. Is what I'm saying. I'm just trying to be as honest and introspective as I can about it. You can see all the parallels, and uh, I think Dan Koch's going to come on in a week or two. Maybe we'll talk about some of these things. But I think you're going to hear it a lot, and you're going to hear a lot of people saying how bad that is or negative or using it as an insult. I'm just trying to embrace it from a point of openness and saying, yes, this is belief. This is alignment. There's purity. There's morality. It's trying to... These are the things that are the ingredients of religion. All the same types of things will apply. I'm not talking about yeah. supernatural one way or the other kind of thing. But I do find it very, very fascinating. But can you just, I mean, is it trigger you in the, I want to hear, does not this type of the rise of this and the alignment of this and people going this way and that way and everything's happening, does it not trigger further your end times vibes? Like we talked about a few weeks ago, he said, if it gets crazier, I'm about to go up to a cabin. Does yeah. not does it not trigger your end times anxiety? Uh, yes. Well, okay. I, I want to say two things. Yes, in a way, but this doesn't feel like as scary in times as like what I was told in church. You know, the Satan and the four horsemen, mm-hmm. all this stuff. You know, coming. It, this feels more like. I guess watching the protests and just following so much and and following you know thought leaders on uh, Twitter and social media in some spots, uh, different spots like like the social those social media sites. Um, this is feels there's so I think this is why it feels so powerful. Is it feels like there's real hope. Like you've I felt I so helpless against this sickness and this disease, this COVID. I felt I mean I when when people talk about racism and they say systemic racism. I go, okay, I want to listen and pay attention. I, I want to hear, and, and I have in the past, but not, I haven't gone full on. And that feels so overwhelming. When you say systemic, systemic racism, I don't, the, I'm, then I'm like, wait a minute, is there any solution for it? How can you, is, is it possible to even affect real change? I'm just one person with a family and bills, and I got to get back to work, and, and my kids need, you know, to go to the dentist, and I got to get some glasses. And I start thinking about my own life, and it's very easy. I think a lot of people do that. This felt like, the little guy goes, no more. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like the, the little guy's like, man, you've been fucking pushing me around for so long. And 
I've done everything I could. You know, we tried to peaceful protest. We've tried to tell everyone, look what's happening. And then the, 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 the you know, the marginalized, the, the poor, the socioeconomic folks that, that don't have what the elite have go no more. And they stood up and everybody had to take notice. And it felt like, yeah. whoa, maybe in a world where I thought it's going to be so hard to change because, you know, the, People like the Epstein's and and the, and the and the bad guys are in power and you can't do it and then all of a sudden people go no and everybody has to listen yeah like real people go stop listen and yes. it's working and I was like man it made me like so. it, 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 this sounds funny in a way but it's like the most time I felt American in a, in a long time I, I don't really feel American when I put my hand over my heart How about and global sing unity though like there's a global the, unity to it I know right? you're seeing it all over the the world and it's like yeah. real people going wait a minute it's it might be like we we had uh shane on are you listening uh you know he lives in canada from silverstein and before we got on he was like hey you know th- i mean that that stuff happens here too i was like wow i mean it, it uh, of mm. course there's racism everywhere of course there's police bro- t- brutality and and abuse of power but it just feels like maybe if we can keep this movement moving mm-hmm. keep it going they're, they're really it's real hope like that I, I didn't agree with so much of Bernie Sanders, but there's something about that guy that made me go, you know, I think he means what he says. Yeah, yeah. And these people mean what they say. They're going to, you know, they're out there, uh, you know, fighting for justice. And, mm-hmm. and you know, and it, it challenged us. That's why, you know, I, I was challenged so much this week. I was like, you know, it felt scary to write, the, you know, to serve and protect the song that we wrote for Emory. Uh, uh, we are one, 100% of the proceeds. We, uh, our good friend Sarah Stewart made an awesome Black Lives Matter church uh, T-shirt. Church. <laughs> See, there you Matter. go. You got me on religion. Uh, oh, not an me. awesome Black not Lives uh, Matter T-shirt. Uh, we wrote a song, and there's a bad Christian worship shirt song. too. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, not, <laughs> it's, it's about the heaviest song we've written in a long time. If you're a fan of Emory's heavy stuff, but like I said, all the proceeds go to uh, join uh, campaign zero dot uh, org. You mean and it's campaign zero, and it's just. Uh, a really great organization, and that's not even that much. And I don't, I, I don't really want to talk about it much because we're not trying to be heroes. We're, I mean, we're the same old Matt and Toby and Reva. Uh, but I want to. At the end of the song, I, I say the line, uh, "It's never too late to do what's right," which I think might have actually come from the movie The Notebook. But I'm sure somebody else came up with that. But <laughs> I was like, it, I, I haven't gotten it all right. I've gotten a lot wrong. But why wouldn't I start today? Yeah, but I start next week. Oh yeah, I'll be, I'll 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 help people next week. Or so no, I can I can do this today. And man, screaming is hard for me at forty four, but I did yeah. it. And the song it means a lot to me, and that's why I'm I'm happy we could do that. Like it means something to me. It explains uh, the way I feel like about the song is about Christianity. How we've turned uh, a blind eye. That's kind of our lane with bad Christian, and how Christians just use. S- so much of God to keep people down and push people. You know what? First thing we got to do is kneel before Christ. Come on, man. People are being murdered. Come on. Let, let's just stay present for a minute. Stop Stop using the Bible and scripture to, to hold people down and tell them they're wrong for protesting or tell people that they can only protest this way. When you were the same people that were shitting on, on, on folks when they were kneeling uh, during the Pledge of Allegiance, I mean, uh, the National Anthem, rather. So I, I think this song is about God. It's called to protect and to serve, but that's what I think Christians are called to do as well. This isn't a, a song that, that hates cops. I know there are a 
bunches, probably hopefully majority. I don't know the stats for sure, but I think a lot there are a lot of great cops out there. Um, but there's some really bad things going on, and it, we have to change it. And cops have to stand up against it. People have to stand up against it. I have to stand up against it. And so that's what this song's about. If you want to hear more about it, too, we did it with Aaron Sprinkle, uh, our good friend Aaron Sprinkle. We worked on several of our records, probably most notably The Question. But uh, And it, the song just turned out great, and I was just really happy we were able to take a, a, some time and, and do that and you know, kind of show some support in ways that we can. Yeah, I mean that's all, that's what I'm. That's all we can do is the best we can do the day you can and try to tell the truth and figure it all out. But it, yeah. to me, it just does obviously fit feels very much in the in the place of hope and faith and belief. And it's just no, there's just no. I don't think it's wise to uh, deny that. Is all I'm saying. Yeah. So I think there's plenty to think about over the coming months and years. Um, but it's very exciting. I'm super sympathetic to so many elements of what these protests are. That's so. Uh, standing up to authority, it's underdog, it's the people, it's global unity. I mean, there's just so many elements to it. And that's, of course, on top of the very specific murder of George Floyd and Black Lives Mattering. That's not, that is the whole thing, but it's also, you can feel it shaking loose a whole bunch of undercurrent things that have been pent up and built up for a long time that have a lot to do with a lot of people's hope, belief, all that kind of stuff. And there's no perfect way to do it, but, uh, you know, keep, keep an eye out on how it relates to religion. If you're a person who is fundamentally religious in orientation and concept, and you've been through more than one religious type of thing and are prone to spiritual experience, then that's just something to be introspective about as we go into a big time of change, which is what it seems yep. like that we're doing. But anyway, it's all enough to just make me exhausted. And that's what everybody always says, how exhausted they are these days. But that's why I like Brooklinen. Mm-hmm. Toby, you're a fan of Brooklinen also, right? I've uh, been a fan for years, Matt. I mean, it helps me to have some of the best sleep I've had in a long time, and that's during a pandemic. <laughs> and it's because it's just so darn comfortable. Uh, and sleep is really important during this time. I mean, there have been some nights where, you know, I woke up in the middle of the night or felt, you know, the stress or the pressure of everything that's happening. And I have to tell you, I still feel so comfortable in my Brooklinen sheets. And uh, one of the things that I think is important during this time is to make, you know, make a few changes in your life. Try, try to make small changes, and that leads to big improvements. I'll give you a couple. Like, what if you woke up five minutes earlier each day, and eventually, instead of waking up, you know, sleeping in till 8, you got up at 6.30, got some things done. What if you went for a meatless Monday? And, you know, one, one day of vegetarianism sounds kind of fun, maybe even healthy, dare I say. You can sub out a soda for a water. All these little things add up to a big thing, and that's why I Brooklinen is important because they seem like a little thing that makes such a big improvement on your sleep and your bedroom, it makes your bedroom feel like an oasis. Seriously. Uh, one of my favorite things about them is how comfortable they are. They really did bring like a, I guess I'd say like a, it brought new life to my bedroom. I always just think your bedroom is where you go and close your eyes. No, this is where I go enjoy like a luxury product. It's awesome. I, I'm going to try to encourage you. Don't you want a little luxury in your life? I mean, that's what you need. Brooklinen was uh, founded in early 2014, but husband and wife uh, duo Rich and Vicky Falop, uh, they wanted to find a beautiful home essentials that didn't cost an arm and a leg, and it was very hard for them to find them. Today, they are on a mission to make you comfortable. And they've even moved beyond bed, the bedroom to offer bathroom and life essentials. They have towels, which are super plush and ultra light. They have shower curtains, bath mats, robes, which are awesome. Even candles to add that extra lavish 
lavish touch and ultra soft loungewear, making you feel like you never left the bed. Uh, and one of my favorites is the silk eye mask. I know y'all wouldn't think I would wear one, but it's kind of it's kind of tight. That light gets in. You want to sleep a little bit. So anyway, enough about me. Brooklinen.com is the perfect place to start making small changes that make big differences. Brooklinen is so confident in their product that all their sheets, comforters, loungewear, and towels come with a lifetime warranty. Go on and make yourself comfortable. Get 10% off your first order and free shipping when you use promo code BADCHRISTIAN only at brooklinen.com. Brooklinen, everything you need to live your most comfortable life yeah toby thank you uh you hear that music y'all hear that i love it that shit is tight what is it that's tiger wine now some people had said you know recently that rock is dead but that ain't true that ain't true at all uh tooth and nail has put out two great rock records in may alone so you know both of them both of them are newer bands that you might not have heard about yet this one's called tiger wine check that out hope you like it i'll let you hear a little bit of it band is from Colorado and their first and their record Nothing is for You has already gotten tons of fantastic reviews and it's a must listen if you're a post rock post hardcore fan which I am and I think many of you are. Okay, now we'll roll on into another release of theirs. This one is called Off-Road Minivan and it's a side project from the guys for Fit for a King. It's the vocalist and bassist Tuck O'Leary. Their new record, Swan Dive, has also come out to amazing reviews. So if you're an emo rock fan, this record is for you, and I think it's terrific. So go follow both bands on Spotify. That's all you got to do. Dig into these records if you're looking for some new rock music. We love them and hope you do, too. Again, that's Tiger Wine that you heard and then Off-Road Minivan. Great bands, great label, thanks to Tooth & Nail. Very excited. Um, we were just talking about her name, and I'm uh, once again. I'm always nervous when I say anyone's name, but we have Miriam Nayab Yazdi, and um, very good. And we're uh, I, we had uh, <laughs> <laughs> there you go again. I know. I'm gonna. I'll just, I'll just move on. Uh, I'm excited to have you on because um, we've been talking. I mean, of course, during this time in history. 
like uh, rights and fighting for our rights and and figuring out what uh, the, what oppression looks like and what people are are going through and living through. And uh, we just thought you you work and and actually started the Oslo Women's Rights Initiative and actually some other stuff as well, which I'm sure we'll get into. But um, one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on, Marion, was just because I I don't know much. I do not know much about Iran. I don't. Let me expand that a little bit. I don't know much about the rest of the world. I'm I'm very typical American living in my bubble, and I hear about stuff, and I hear stories, and we see you know news media saying this is bad, or you know governments doing this and that. But uh, I don't. I it's very easy for me to roll right on past it, and I feel like I can't do that anymore. It feels unfair to literally be in this bubble still. And so uh, we are really excited to have you on. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you. I'm uh, very excited to be here. Uh, I haven't done, uh, I haven't done an interview in a very long time. Um, but when I heard about you guys, it just felt like right now, especially with what's going on, um, it felt like, you know, I need to start speaking out more, um, doing interviews. And so you're actually probably the first interview I'm doing in a very long time. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm thrilled about that. Why don't we get into just starting with your story and how you became, how you uh, grew up and then got into activism itself. And, and I think that would, that'd be appropriate then. Sure. Yeah. I, I totally get your sentiment about feeling like, you know, because you live in, um, America, or I would say North America, you feel so far removed from the rest of the world. Um, I kind of can relate to that, actually, even though I'm uh, Iranian um, background. I was born in Iran, uh, uh, but we moved to Canada when I was five. So I basically grew up in Canada and uh, I was around a lot of uh, diversity and human values growing up um, that are promoted in Canada within the education system. Um, just society at large. So that really helped move me toward being a, a conscious citizen overall. Um, and although I, although I was Iranian background, I was quite far removed from Iranian, uh, I don't know, I guess the situation in Iran. Um, but when I was 20 in 2003, I, I, I went on a trip to Iran for the first time since leaving in 1989. We left during the Iran-Iraq war, um, and then we came to Canada. Uh, when I went to Iran, it was like a culture shock for me as well, um, because I was just like so focused on like Canadian life. <laughs> um, and I guess like internet wasn't as, as accessible then, so you really were just like in your own bubble. And Iran wasn't like Canada? <laughs> <laughs> it was just like, uh, yeah, so when I went there, I mean, well, first of all, most of my family is in Iran. So uh, when I went with my mother, um, it was like a shock to see like all these people that like they, they feel so much love for you and you can feel so much love for them. And you feel this like deep connection to them. Um, and for the first time, my heart like felt so full. And it was such a strange feeling to feel such a deep connection on a human level to people that you don't even know, really. We didn't really keep in touch with them while we were in Canada either. Um, so I was basically introduced to a country uh, that I was really far removed from. 
And um, other than like the food and the dance, you know, just like the more superficial stuff, uh, which I was quite familiar with, um, I didn't know any uh, all the nuances. I didn't have like a deep understanding of the dynamics in Iran, particularly uh, the political and human rights situation. Um, even being in that country wasn't enough for me to understand uh, the, the deep rooted pain uh, that Iranians experience uh, that's inside of them. Um, I guess how I justified it to myself, like, I mean, you, like you go there knowing it's a dictatorship, right? <laughs> but it's like, you kind of justify it to yourself because you're just like, well, they kind of accepted this life. I had this like West, I, I kind of call it like a Western mentality where you, you kind of feel like, well, that's, that's their life. It's, that's their business. And you feel like it's okay. It's okay for people to live in this world without their basic human rights. So I had as if it was their choice or they built it that way or they chose it or something. Well, you kind of, well, you, 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 you can even be aware of the fact that they didn't even get to, because a dictatorship, you know, you don't get to choose that. I mean, you may vote for someone who ends up becoming a dictator, but no one votes for a dictatorship. No one votes for their rights to be taken away from them. Their basic human rights. That's like something that happens gradually. So, um, so, you know, yeah, sure. Iranians, you know, they had an uprising or revolution decades ago, but they basically <laughs> have been stuck with that decision since then. Um, and with no, no pathway for change, you know? So, uh, but at the same time you, I, I went in there thinking, okay, fine. I understand they don't have their basic human rights. I understand, um, they probably want it, but don't have it, but they've, they've made it work. So life can be different for different people. You know, it's just like, the, I can't explain it. I, I, it's such an illogical mentality, but somehow in, in the West, we. I, I think, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think it, it's very easy to fall into that trap of, well, you know, like, like, for example, your family moved away. If they, or, you know what I mean, like, you, like yeah. you, your family did move away, so you could say tell tell yourself logically. Well, if you don't like something, or you want to, or you want to leave, or you want to experience new things, it's very much. I grew up in the south part of uh, the United States in South Carolina, and it's the same thing. I've, I've heard so many people say, "Well, if you don't like it here, just you know, leave the country or, or move somewhere." But but that's because we inherently have freedoms that we just don't even recognize in our statements. You know what I mean? And so I'm sure you're right. Like once you started recognizing that, wait a minute, people are living here and they almost, are you saying it's almost just ingrained that they just have, they kind of have to live with that. It's just, is it like a, almost like a group think or group mentality that everybody's like, well, this is just what we have. We just have a dictator. I think it's about, um, as a human being, uh, you try to make the best of your situation. Human beings have pride. We're, you know, we're all humans, and we have this need um, to to live our best lives, and no matter the situation or circumstance that we're in. We try to make the best of our situation. So, yeah, if you're living in a dictate, like you know, so many times people like they'll go to like um, a dictatorship country. I don't want to name anyone specific, any country specifically, um, and they'll see like people are very happy there and. Beautiful, kind-hearted, loving people, and they say, "Wow, they have nothing, but look how, look how loving they are. Look how happy, like look how much they're smiling and dancing." And you're just like, "Well, because they're making the best of their situation, that this still does not make it okay for them to live without their basic human rights." Just because they're, um, um, what's that word, um, resilient, 
just because they can endure, it doesn't mean it's okay for them to tolerate um, not having their basic human rights. Because, you know, you can, you can make it work, but you can't maximize on your human potential if you don't have your basic rights. So people, people without their basic rights are always going to be a step behind in the world. What what are the basic rights that we're we're talking about in this particular context? The, the most the most basic freedom of thought, freedom of speech, freedom of, of expression. Just the most basic freedom of assembly. You know, there's 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 fundamental rights that are universal. Um, that many actually many of the dictatorship countries um, they signed uh, conventions and treaties within the UN that basically tells them that they need to adhere to basic human rights. So on paper, they say that they do, but in practice, they don't. So that's one another problem that we have, um, where you hear the cop cars, I'm in DC, so. <laughs> I'm pretty normal these days, yeah. Yeah, I live in a three-way area, so. Well, when you, so, so when you went to Iran, what was the, what was the thing that you saw that that changed your worldview at that point? What, what, what did, what what did you see with like family members or the people there? Is that, is that the moment you're like, wait a minute, I have to actually take action? No, no, it it wasn't. So, um, so when you're in, so in 2003, when I was there, um, I guess, so when you're a tourist, right, when you're a visitor, uh, you don't even know, you, you don't feel their pain because they just want you to have a good time because they're aware of the perception that the world has of Iran because of the dictatorship regime. Um, so Iranian people, like, and it, again, goes back to just being a, like, just the typical human behavior of wanting other people, especially outsiders, to not view you in the same light as they view this brutal dictatorship regime. Um, because you don't want people to think you're the same as them because you are forced to live under that regime. Um, and so they go above and beyond to show you a good time and uh, to show that they're not like that. So I had the best three weeks of my life. Um, wow. Yeah. Like I had, like I've never felt humanity like that in my life. I, that's a historical kind of a thing that we see the joy and celebration in oppressed people sometimes. Like you've seen it with American slavery and their spiritual songs and the cultures that they created as a way to deal with oppression and, and stuff like that. I mean, that seems to be part of the resilient human spirit is that despite terrible things happen to them, they have the ability to band together and make positivity in the worst of circumstances. Absolutely. And I think it's important that we channel that beauty um, and use it for good rather than, than stopping at that and saying, wow, that's so beautiful. And then being OK with them living that yes, way. That's you know, evil. that's evil to say, see, they're doing good. So it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Like exactly. that's the, that's when you've really said now I don't have to worry about it because, look, they're happy. So off, I don't have to worry about it. And it, it may be the same as. I think another element there, though, that at least I'm guilty of, I assume other people are this way, is, yeah, I'm sure there's tons of kids starving in Africa and dying of mosquitoes in South America. But, you know, it's not like I could actually worry about it. So I have to come up with a mechanism. I must come up with a mechanism to live my life day by day without experiencing and feeling responsible for the world's suffering. So I have to have some buffer where I'm able to act. And then when you see people getting along fine, you go, okay, well, I won't worry about them. But if somebody really approaches me or I see something on my street corner or I get 
somebody to really sell me on children's starvation, I'll do just the minimum so I don't have to worry about it. But really, the most thing I'm interested in is keeping me from having to experience the stress and the pain of of facing it. Is is the th- yeah. and that's that's the the wrong. Appro- I mean, you have to be actively expanding that. But of course, everybody has to have some buffer yeah. from the world's suffering. You know, it's a coping mechanism. Totally. I actually, that's 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 exactly it. Um, I, so I was, you know, when I went, I got back after three weeks in 2003, I was affected. Of course, I, I got interested. I, I wasn't, I, to be honest, I wasn't really interested in learning more about the Iranian culture before that trip. And then when I got back, I, cause I was like focused on being Canadian. I don't know. I don't know what that means anymore, but at that time it just, <laughs> um, but then when I got back, I started to learn more about the, you know, just I started to learn more of the culture. But then my life changed in summer 2009. So several years later, after that experience, um, when I uh, when there was an uprising in Iran after the elect, uh, the June 2009 presidential election in Iran. And then there was this like mass uprising that erupted. And that at that mo- that's when my life changed. That's when I became an activist, actually. So going to Iran wasn't enough to move to activism because I couldn't see the ugliness. And I think that um, I'll get to your point in a second about that, because uh, in 2009, when I saw the the youth, there were mostly like people in their 20s that were in the streets. And I looked at them and at that moment, I thought, oh, my God, that, that could have been me if we didn't leave in 1989. And oh my God, these people aren't happy. <laughs> they, they want basic human rights as well. Um, oh my God, they're willing to like die for it. Oh my God. And it just, it was just such a moment for me where I'm like, oh my God, like it was just, I don't know. I can't explain it. Um, other than to say that before that moment, I didn't even believe in God. I wasn't a spiritual person. I wasn't a religious person. I didn't grow up with religion. But in that moment, something happened to me that summer. Um, I became spiritual that summer. I started to believe in this energy within me that I refer to as God. Um, and I feel like if I hadn't, if I didn't have that epiphany moment um, and that connection to God, it was a uh, I, I don't think I, I could have sustained being an activist in the Iran space. Was that attached to the uh, – it seems that these transcendent experiences that people have that are very transformative are often where you see yourself in somebody else's shoes and see that you're connected, and then you get this b- bigger, broader sense of, of humanity and how it's all the same. Is it like Was it like that? Yeah, I think that once – it's like this awakening experience, right? And like right now, as a, as, a, as a world, we're going through a collective awakening, which we can get into a little later about that, which goes into the point that you mentioned. But in 2009, I was having an individual awakening moment. Yeah, okay, you know, Iranians were having a collective awakening, but it wasn't sustainable because it wasn't a global awakening. That's my theory on that. But I, I, I had a legitimate uh, individual awakening. And it was because I connected to the hearts of the people. So I went a step further, actually, because that summer, Michael Jackson died. And uh, so the media shifted its focus from Iran to Michael Jackson and never went full force back to Iran. But the people were still dying in the streets. And there was a media blackout. So they needed basically us to to help you know, spread their voices to the world to help protect them, I guess, in some ways. 
um, or to hold the Iranian authorities more accountable. So it was just like simple. I, I just started to translate um, a lot of the reports, like human rights reports or testimonials from prisoners and uh, ordinary Iranians into English and other languages to keep them alive in the mainstream. Um, so that was that's that's where I saw my purpose. Um, and through that experience, I, I, I didn't know Persian that well either. So I basically had to learn Persian overnight as well. I had some basic understanding, so that helped. But um, and I, it was the translation process. I think that's one thing like you can't like you have to sort of break the language barrier. Um, and then you can feel each people's hearts because we're all human. So, you know, you can relate to their you can relate to someone else's heart. Um, so yeah, it was, it was just that moment where, um, I, my eyes, my eyes opened up and I can no longer close them. And in the first year or two, that was okay because actually the first year and a half, it was okay because it was still kind of trendy to stand in solidarity with the Iranians, uh, because there were actual uprisings happening. So it was very visible and it was like the very first time uh, that we're seeing like such a mass uprising on YouTube. <laughs> so it was very transformative in that sense. Um, so in the first year and a half, it was sort of more like me just translating. It was a very robotic in many ways. Uh, how, when you say translating, like you, how are you getting information? Was it just from the news sources on, on the ground there? Or like, you know, like w- what we have here, like CNN or, or whatever, Fox News or something. Did, where were you getting your, or were you trying to get it from like yeah. Twitter or social media? Or I'm translating Persian language reports. So, and then we would send to CNN and other other outlets to keep the news alive because they weren't they weren't covering it because they weren't allowed to be on the ground in Iran. Um, so no one really like we had to rely on uh, citizen journalists inside Iran to send information out. Which is would have been extremely dangerous, right? If if they're if they're found, they're that, that's probably... why I started my activism because I realized that they're risking their lives to send videos, and the least I can do is spread it or get it translated. And yeah. I felt, I felt purp- I felt like I have a purpose in my life for the mm. first time. I guess because before that I was looking f- like. Um, I guess nine eleven and then the wars, like I don't know, and then the recession. You know, I grew up during that, and I was looking for a purpose. Like I wanted to feel like I'm contributing something to this world. I felt like I wasn't fulfilled just working an ordinary job. Wow. Do you mind if I ask another couple of questions just about that itself? Because all the territory you're talking about, I just find extremely fascinating, especially coming from a Christian point of view in the Christian narrative and my experience and stuff like that. There's always this thing of a, having a conversion experience, which is, you know, what you kind of talk about in that way. And then and then becoming uh, awake and then activism with a mission and a purpose, you know, like that seems to be something that's as available outside of any religious experience to lots of people. And I'm kind of interested in that process. Um, just fundamentally, you, you described it as you first were awake and you didn't know a mission or a purpose yet, but you could just see, and you had motivation. Was that, and then at some point it crystallized what the actual mission was? Yeah, I I knew that, uh, I guess after my Iran trip in 2003 and then me learning more and then with everything that happened in the world with the wars and recession and, uh, I guess I, um, 
I guess I knew that I wanted to do, I, I basically, I ne- I'm a very prideful person in the sense that I always wanted to feel like I'm successful, like what I'm doing has purpose. So, um, so I thought, you know, and I'm living in a Canadian society, um, as a woman, ind- independent woman. Um, so I thought, you know, I, wh- wh- what path can I take where I can feel the most strength in, in that path uh, and empowered. So I decided that I'm going to help bridge the gap between, um, Iranians inside Iran and outside because we're so disconnected. And that was inspired by um, my trip and realizing that I want, I want to learn so much about Iran and I just, there's no resources and it's all in Persian and I can't read it. So I just, I started an online magazine prior to activism. Um, it was all English language just to like bridge that gap. And I just wanted to like bring Iranians more together just to strengthen our communities. And I thought that would help in turn strengthen me and everyone else in our community together we can stronger in numbers and unity so i was kind of focused on community building and then when the protests happened um i was uh i don't know i i i felt this like for the first time in my life i felt true love for myself i've never felt that feeling before huh. and uh and it was it, it was triggered the protests happened, but it, and that awakened me, but it wasn't my epiphany moment. It was like the protest was the first step. And then I had this, uh, I got this random phone call from a friend. It has nothing to do with anything, but it was just, it was like a call that changed my life. And she called me and she was just telling me this story about her, a weekend that she had in Montreal. It was just like a silly story, but somehow that story triggered me to, to, to think about something that led to my epiphany moment. You know, the, the, the phone call is insignificant, but it was, it was whatever happened, that phone call triggered me to realize, oh my God, you know what? I'm 26 years old. The world's like the world's on fire or Iran's on fire. Um, I need to get my part in my, I need to get my shit together. I need to figure out what I want, where I want to be in five years from now, and where I don't want to be. And I think yeah. that the don't want to be was the the, the moment that was very right. powerful. And I started thinking about some people in my life and where they are at like age 40. I was 26 at the time. I'm like, oh my God, I don't want to be there when I'm 40. Where is the there that you didn't want to be, if you don't mind? <laughs> I'm kind of actually there. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't want to be alone at 40. I'm 36 now. I'm alone. Um, that's a little scary. But um, but other than that, I mean, feeling like you have a purpose and that, you know, you're you know what you're doing. That, that's covered, you know. So um, feeling directionless, you know, feeling like being, a, I don't know, having ego, like just certain things, like certain things I didn't want to be. Um so then I wrote down where I want to be, where I don't want to be. I actually wrote it down. And then I went to sleep that night. And I don't know, I just felt true love for myself for the first time. I've just never felt that feeling before. And that's that's what the feeling of God was, this true love for myself. The next day I woke up and life changed. And then 
had you had had you had like negative thoughts before that, like uh, self loathing, or like were you uh, hard on yourself? Like when you say you'd never loved yourself before, what what do you mean by that? Like, oh, like true love, true love. Yeah. So I, I I mean I'm sure I've loved myself before. You know I've uh, I've always tried to take care of myself. So you have to have a level of love for yourself to I guess do that. But um, I guess true love. Yes, I've had a I have I've had a hard life. Um, that I don't necessarily, you know, care to share publicly, but I did have a hard life and I've, I have been independent since I've been a teenager. So I've had to sort of pave my own way in many ways. Um, and so, you know, it's, I, I've been blessed to have a lot of great people in my life around me that've sort of been my like guardian angels, but at the same time, um, I have to wake up every day, motivating myself. You know, and so you're human. So there's days where, you know, you don't feel like you love yourself. Yeah. that That's an interesting point that you're making, like having to be so self-reliant at such a young age. That also uh, just some of the people I talk with and uh, friends and, and uh, have, have been in situations like that where they had a, a, a rough upbringing or, or something happened in their life where they were on their own pretty early. And it helps you to be strong. It helps you to, uh, trust yourself and, but it can also lead to, uh, it's harder to trust other people because you've been hurt or it's easier to, you know, well, I'll just trust myself in these instances. So it, when it sounds like too, I, I can kind of relate to a little bit to your story. It, when you say you don't love yourself, it's because you have, you have to stay hard on yourself or else you can't, you can't afford to let yourself down. If you let yourself down, then it's all gone. And so it, it sometimes it's hard that way. And so maybe seeing that, I, I was thinking the same thing. Y'all were talking about the spirituality of, of seeing that. When you see somebody that would risk their life for something, that's like the most truth thing. You know what I mean? Like even, like even when y'all were talking about, you know, when we talk about uh, faith or or God, uh, that the idea of a, a God that would die uh, because it meant something or a person, uh, you know, would fight against a regime or a dictatorship even knowing that their life wouldn't, but it, they would do it for somebody else because that is what is actually true. When you can touch or be around that amount of truth, it really is light, it's, it's transformational for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, but I guess, but it was also um, very painful. Because, I mean, the first year it was like, I was like, I fell in love with myself. I was like on cloud nine. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was like, I was like, I'm going to be celibate. Like, I don't need nobody. <laughs> it was like the, it was like the most powerful feeling I've ever had in my life. Yeah. Um, I was like, well, I, I don't know. I was like reborn. <laughs> it was like a foregone conclusion yeah. that you were going to be, that it was all, it was, you are, I figured out the path and it was going to be so great. I've got everything. I'm going to do it. Yeah, you know, I I've figured it out. Committed. Yeah, yeah. God, God's with me forever. Like that's right. right. <laughs> I know. I know. I, I've been there more than once, I think. <laughs> but that feeling doesn't stay. <laughs> it goes away, doesn't it? It goes away. Um, so it went away. Uh, not, not fully. I think like once you feel that energy, it never fully goes away, which thank goodness for that. Um, but it definitely started going away um, or becoming uh, diluted and um, by end of 2010. And by that time, I was caught, like at this point, like, you know, street protests are um, less frequent. 
And uh, the Iranian authorities had done such a successful job in suppressing them um, because they're so brutal in their suppression and they killed so many innocent Iranians. And to this day, we don't know where some of them are or where they're buried. Um, and that's like 11 years later. Um, but uh, it was so so basically they also executed a lot of people, um, not necessarily uh, protesters, um, but they, they, they hyped up their execution numbers to scare civil society into submission. So they wouldn't mm-hmm. protest. Uh, and, and do they do these executions like by law, like it, it, with Iranian law, like, yeah. is it legal for them to, to shut, you know, go take somebody from their family or execute them? I mean, they, they can do that legally. It's not just like a, just steal you and that's it or what? How does that work? Oh, no, it's it's just like, you know, the U.S. has a death penalty as well. So same same process in that way, um, except that, you know, they don't do lethal injections. They they hang them to death by the noose. And they, they also do public executions because, you know, they want to set an example. They want to inflict that fear onto the society. Um, they normally will execute, uh, well, th- the execution situation in Iran has changed because we've uh, the international community has done a great job in placing pressure on the Iranian authorities, so they've decreased their numbers. But during that time, um, during the, uh, it's still one uh, one of the highest or the highest country per capita in the world for execution. So don't get me wrong. I'm just, uh, the, but the, basically, I guess the only difference would be that there's more due process in the U.S. But you know, with all that's going on with the systemic racism that's being unearthed. Um, you know, that that's questionable as well about due process in the U.S. But, yeah. you know, there is there is a, there is more of a system there. But, yeah, in Iran, you know, you could get you could get executed for drug possession, you know. Um, and, uh, yeah, you could get you could get arrested for protesting or for your opinion. And then they'll charge you with like a security charge, like um sowing corruption on earth or moharebe, which means enmity against God, uh, which technically means that you you had picked up arms and then they'll sentence you to death because they'll say you had like a weapon. And, you know, so uh, there's no due process in that sense. And um, but, uh, but, but me getting involved and realizing that it is their number one weapon against civil society. Executions very quickly became one of my core focuses. So after one year of activism, a lot of people that you know had joined um, the the uprising uh, in solidarity sort of went back to their ordinary lives because that's what you need to do to. Because again, I was having I had an individual awakening moment, but not everyone was there where I was. You know, I'm still living in Canadian society. They're not where I am in my awakening. They're on a, they're another their own level. So. Very, very quickly, there was this imbalance in my life where my entire life was Iran, but I'm living in Canada. I'm living in Toronto. <laughs> my friends, my friends are not in that world. My, my family's not in that world. Um, I can no longer relate to anybody. Um, and it, it upset me. It hurt me. It hurt me that um, they didn't understand the depth of what was happening. And it hurt me when my um, my best friend at the time, um, I grew up with a lot of Greek Orthodox people. I grew up with Christianity and and that uh, it was an influence around me, but I never like felt like I wanted to become religious. Um, but so I grew up around a lot of like kind hearted people. Um, and my best friend, she was a great school teacher. And I remember her telling me one time after 
the Iranian authorities had executed a, a Kurdish school teacher um, for, for his, his thoughts. He didn't commit a crime. And I was devastated. That really traumatized me. And I was talking to her about it and crying. And I remember her crying with me, um, but then turning around and saying, I don't know how you do this every day. I, I willfully close my eyes to what's happening in the world so I can survive every day, so I can go to work. Um, and I understand that I've never judged anyone for that because how could you? This is so, you know, such dark stuff. But at the same time, she's a school teacher. She's educating our future. So, you know, there's, it's just like how, it, 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 so, so that was my struggle, figuring out like this balance. Um, and so by 2013, so by, I guess, 2012, 13, I just felt like I could no longer relate to society. So I became really, I became like a hermit, basically. <laughs> I went. I went into seclusion for about two or three years. Um, and I used that time to really work on myself. So I, I used that time to, um, to, to confront myself and all its ugliness. Um, I don't know. There was this, there was this energy. I felt like I needed to figure out how to, stop being a step behind the Iranian authorities because that's what it felt like. I felt like, you know, they commit a crime. I report on it. I get it right. translated. I felt like a crime chaser. And then I felt like, am I really creating change? Like in the beginning, yeah, when people were in the streets, it made sense. You know, you got to report, you got to report. And you, right. you can't stop doing that because you need someone to, to document this stuff. But at the same time, you need people to understand why it's happening. And they weren't understanding why it was happening. They're just getting the information of what's happening. So I felt overwhelmed. I'm like, okay, I'm not being effective anymore. I need to change. I need to get people to understand why it's happening. They need to, under, they need to feel the hearts of Iranians. They need to f- understand why this, they need to understand they're part of the problem. Yeah. You know, how do you get people to, 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 oh, yeah, right. That's a whole nother step from saying you should care about the problem. Uh, let me tell you something. There's a problem you should care about. Okay, what's the problem? Uh, you're the problem. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's even less likely to care about that, which is probably where the blind spot comes from, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. So, but then, you know, the th- two or three years, and I was actually in a literal closet. I don't want to get it. This sounds a little strange, uh, but I had a bedroom with a like a little small walk-in closet and I just felt safe in there. So I would spend a lot of time in there. And, and so I started working on myself and, and in that closet, it was unhealthy at some points, you know, um, cause I was really isolated from society. So that's not healthy. Um, but I also worked on myself a lot and, uh, you know, and if, 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 if each and individual, each and every one of us is honest with ourselves, we would admit that we're, we all have issues. We're all, we're not, we're all pretty shitty inside. We all have things that we need to work on. Um, so that was really painful <laughs> to realize like, oh my God, wow. Like I need to work on myself and get, get really honest. Uh, that was really hard. 
Um, but in that in in that closet, I came up with the organization that I finally registered in the U.S. last year called Seed Operations Inc. Um, and it's focused on the root causes of of, uh, of issues and on the why um, and and changing how we as a collective think and activate around human rights by focusing on the root causes on root cause analysis. Um, so. So basically, our goal uh, our goal with seed operations is to build a more just and equitable world, and um, and we believe that equality can help um, decrease conflict in the world. I don't, I don't we don't believe we can eliminate conflict, or nor do we think we need to, uh, but just to deal with conflict better. Um, so you know, for many of us, you know, especially in the Iran world, I realize this: we're, we're focused on the symptoms of an issue rather than the root causes, and that's not really letting us. Uh, reach solutions. And then, you know, also with the situation in Syria and then the MENA region uprisings, I realized this as a, as a common theme, that the root causes are not really being discussed. Because if you discuss the root causes, you got to get into really uncomfortable discussions that people don't yes. want to have. So, yes. so our focus is on making people understand the root causes, but in, a, in an accessible way. Ooh, let's do. Let's get into that because I mean that's exactly the way. I mean these issues are not ones that I'm familiar with or know much about, but I have that sense also that a lot of our big taboos are built around things that we don't want to face collectively. That maybe we eventually have to, and you destigmatize this, and you get into that, and you get into that really hard territory. And something that I'm getting from you that I just think is so wonderful is when you talk about activism and people have awakenings and get all pumped up like that. A lot of times that stays really shallow, and you don't do the, people don't do the introspective parts, and then they just are aggressive at the the bad guy. Yes, right. and so you seem to have done that work first to understand that you're the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Everybody's the bad guy, and how can we see this at a root cause level? That's gonna that's much harder work than just getting amped up about a cause and just you know that that's the easy the lazier way to do it. Um, <laughs> for immediate results or whatever it is. So when you talk about root causes of stuff like this, what what are they? What are the taboos that people don't want to hear, but the root causes really lie in what what type of things here? And I say that just from the position of, I, w- I may wouldn't have cared about it a year ago, but if I'm looking at our democracy and our society now, there's things that I didn't want to look at at a root cause level, and there's possibilities for our future that I never considered. Uh, now I look at Iran and loss of human rights, and I, I guess I have to take that very seriously. So I'm quite interested in the root causes. Yeah. I'm willing to do the painful work of looking at it now. So what doing this work, what, what are the root cause type stuff? Even if it's uncomfortable, let's do that. Yeah, I mean, uh, so I've, I've been developing seed operations for the past uh, six, seven years, and now it's finally to the point where, you know, we're, we're putting it into action. And the reason for that is because you've you got to get it right. Um, it's not easy to get people to understand that they have to accept personal responsibility and that the blame game is lame and, you know, we've got to work on ourselves first. Um, and But I think right now we're in such a – we have such momentum, you know, we because we're in a – uh, we're going through a collective uh, uh, unveiling. Sorry, can you, one second. Uh, we're going through a collective unveiling, um, and so we can just like use this momentum. Um, root causes differ depending on the issue. Um, so I think that uh, what what we're doing at Seed Operations is we're building mental muscles around critical thinking and root cause analysis. So it's not necessarily. Uh, about the particular issue, it's about our way, our approach to that issue, and learning how to have uh, to think in a root cause analysis way. Um, so, because once people understand uh, the root causes, they become activated and inclined to do something. 
until you if you don't understand why something is happening it's really hard to understand um how you can change like if, if you can contribute to making a difference in any way um sometimes just having like more focused conversations about these issues at a dinner table or with your friends can make all the difference you know because we we often echo um people we respect and trust and, and their opinions um it's something that we want to change actually we think that we want people to think more for themselves um so at seed operations we're not really telling people um what to think we're we're just sort of providing them the tools on how to think and so they can think for themselves. Um, and, and we want to mobilize everyday people to realize their own power, um, that, you know, that they have individual power and that can translate into collective power. Um, and, and so what we do at Seed Operations is we have, um, we basically connect, ex uh, we, we bring experts like human rights, um, people that work on the ground, frontline experts, um, who understand the root causes of issues, we connect them with creatives, uh, people who can, uh, once they understand the root issues, can know how can transfer that information into accessible messaging for a global audience. Um, and it really depends on the issue. Um, so yeah, we can we can talk about like right now what's happening in the U.S. For instance, um, I think is so important and it does right now this moment it makes me feel like my whole like last decade last 11 years is is coming full circle it does feel like that this this collective awakening and i feel like um this window can close so we need to take advantage of it right now um we're starting to see more communities in um in the u.s especially um with the white communities waking up to the fact that like white supremacy is hardwired into the very institution of this country, for example. So we need to like harness this awakening and this understanding, this energy into tangible action um, that's going to lead to chipping away um, at the institutions and dismantling white supremacy that is structurally embedded in, into the institutions in the U.S. Um, and systematic systemic racism is a global pandemic and it affects even Iran, you know, there's racism in Iran as well, uh, but racism looks different depending on, you know, where you're from. Uh, in some countries, it's about religious minorities or ethnic minorities. Um, so we are going through a historical shift right now. Um, systemic racism is the root issue. Um, and I think that like what's happened in the U.S. is going to change our work as well. Um, because now that systemic racism has, uh, it's at the surface where everyone can see it it's going to change our approach um, to other issues that we talk about. Um, so basically, Americans need to understand how they got here. Um, and the answer is in the root causes of the origin, or, origin, story, origin story of this country. Uh, the U.S. was founded on slavery and genocide of indigenous people. And, um, and so, so what's important here, you know, no matter if you're talking about the U.S. or women's rights issues or, or Iran, that, that this is not just the, the history of like those people. This is a collect this is our collective history. We have to come to terms with that. Um, yeah, so so basically, um, I don't know if you want to talk about what's happening in the US. It is, uh, we, it is going to be one of our focuses at seed operations. Um, it is interconnected with everything else we do. We don't see human rights issues as separate. And so, so seed operations is more of a uh, 
global initiative? It is a global initiative. Um, Our goal is to get people, uh, we want to build the mental muscles and get people to think in a root cause analysis way. So right now, for instance, our first our first project that we created is called the Oslo Women's Rights Initiative. Um, so um, the the I guess the the idea behind that is that you you can't uh, achieve peace and security in the MENA region if you don't have women at at the table. Right. Um, you need women. Uh, they are the uh, the leaders of these civil, civil rights movements. Um, oftentimes, uh, women are used for their ideas. Um, they are the doers, and then once you start progressing, they're pushed to the sidelines. You know, and they need to be at the table. Um, whereas, you know, many times, you got if there's like a war situation, you know, the international community is talking to, to the men with the guns. To, to come up with a solution. It's like, no, you got you to gotta get the, the, the peace builders to come together for solutions. And the women need to be at the table. And women, are, are women like, for example, in Iran, are, are they fighting for that? Or like, are they, how, what, what's the process for them to get their voices heard? It, or does that even exist yet? Well, I'm talking about the international community um, because the internet, so the root causes of, let's say, uh, the situation in the MENA region, the Middle East, North Africa region, um, or most most dictatorships in the world, I would say, is the fact that the international community helps sustain those dictatorships because they're 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 having dialogue with the, un, the 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 actors who helped create the instability in the first place, rather than sitting with civil society leaders who are the true representatives of those societies, rather than the people who are the abusers of those societies and don't represent those societies. So just regular diplomacy, as in just our country and an Iran deal, you see that as misguided then? I think that any, any, I'm not against dialogue at all. Um, I think though, but dialogue needs to put human rights at the top of the agenda. So at Seed Operations, we want to make sure that when it comes to Iran, that human rights, the, the, the human rights-centered narrative is the dominant one in the mainstream in regards to Iran. That is no long, that that is currently not the case, you know. So we want to make that the case. We want to make human rights-centered narrative regarding Iran, no matter what the issue is that you're talking about. But is, is it that right now, and in, in where we're at in society and diplomacy, is it still men with with power and guns and nuclear weapons and uranium? Like that's the dominant part of the narrative and money, that kind of thing, as opposed to a human rights centered approach. Yeah, it's just about those. I, I probably heard it many times. Like um, uh, we can't mix like human rights into the nuclear issue. They're two separate issues, right, right. and they're not two separate issues. Like this, this idea that you know you can. You can improve an economy or um, improve relations with a dictatorship regime and sustain an economy, and then somehow magically that's going to bring bring uh, human rights or liberties is 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 uh, delusional. Like we don't, I don't, I don't think we have examples of that. Um, so I think that we know we need to put human rights at the top of the agenda. I'll give you an example, right? So like we know that like if you know if like. If you go to the Iranian authorities and say, okay, well, we're not going to talk to you until, I don't know, you you let women take off their mandatory hijab. They're going to say no. They're not going to negotiate, right? And 
So I think that you need to just be strategic. So the idea is about winning. It's a, it's about a tactic about winning points for human rights to not let um, that bad actor get away with ignoring human rights, even if it's like a symbolic gesture. Like for example, uh, in Iran, women weren't allowed to enter the sporting stadiums because they're women, just because of their gender, right? Their sex. They just can't go. They just can't go. Well, they can't watch men play. They can go and watch women play. They can't watch men play. So, so for example, like, you know, during the Iran talks, uh, the international authorities or community could have said to the Iranian authorities, look, we want to sit down with you and have dialogue, but we also need to have some human rights reforms because, you know, we, we can't compromise our, our values, our human rights values, because a lot of these Western countries are supposed to be built on these human rights values. It is a, an illusion because, you know, of all their issues in their own countries, but it's supposed to be that way, you know. So they could they could go and say, look, we'll sit down with you and talk, but you have to lift the ban on, on women not being able to enter the stadium. That's such a ridiculous ban that they would be they would do it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's a, if nothing else, yeah. it's a small thing. And yeah. of course, that's not good. That's not the main issue in Iran, but it's a win for human rights. Right. You know, and and they never did that. They didn't even bother. And yeah. In fact, in fact, they went above and beyond to cut human rights funding and to 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 blacklist human rights activists during Iran talks and Iran deal. I was completely ignored. I was completely ignored by everyone. There was some media, um, but at that point, it was just, I felt like they just wanted to manipulate the situation. So I stopped doing media interviews. Um, it just felt like if it wasn't about Rouhani or the Iran talks, they didn't want to talk about it. No one no one had an appetite for human rights anymore because Ahmadinejad, the bad president, was no longer the president. And it didn't fit the narrative anymore. And, and you know, why do we live in a world where sometimes human rights fits the narrative and sometimes it doesn't? So that's what we want to change. We want to make so- what I'm hearing, uh, it seems that you're saying that the mechanisms to do this, there's the following the crime and reporting on it and translating it, and that's not enough. You've got to get to more of the uh, downstream effects of stuff. And I'm, I think, tell me if I'm in the right territory, but you, you said that it has to be, you said something earlier and I can't recall exactly what it was, but it's along the lines of trying to get these values and things and figure out what are the containers more broadly where they can start to have impact on people deeply so that they can start to organize their critical thinking. I'm trying and using creativity to do that. That's what I'm most fascinated with is that, that you've paired together in your language, creativity and critical thinking. That is just the most exciting type of thing to me. I'm a very analytical type person and I'm very drawn to creativity, Um, you know, arts and entertainment and those those types of things is it that you need to put the messages in less direct uh things like art and entertainment and media to affect people is that the trajectory of how the creativity and the critical thinking fuse together like art with a mission or you know what i mean like is it is it something like that territory to have more deeper change in people through story or whatever yeah you need to awe and inspire people need to be awed and inspired people um yeah yeah, for sure. Um, but, uh, but you have to make that's what accessible means, I guess, in a sense um, that, you know, there's I guess you can you can find reports. Um, there's NGOs who, who publish reports about root causes of issues. But who's going to read those? They're boring reports. Right. No right. one's going to read them. Even human rights activists don't like reading those reports. Right. <laughs> like, how can we expect like an 
average person or ordinary person just read that. No one's going to do it. So we need to have accessible messaging. We need to speak in the language of people um, to get them to understand things. And the idea is the more critical thinking, uh, the more we get people to build build their mental muscles around root cause analysis, what happens is we we increase the we, we don't know what's going to happen. We can't control, right? We, we can only set the stage, plant the seeds, right? Uh-huh. Um, but what we hope to happen uh, and what we foresee happening is there's going to be an increase in accountability. Because the more people understand issues at their root, at their core, the more focused questions they can ask authorities or corporations or the media about like, why are you doing it like that? Why are you, why are you approaching this issue like this? Like, why are you not talking about the root causes? Like, you know, and the more questions we ask, the more focused questions we ask, the, the more we can hold authorities and powers accountable. And, 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 and they're going to, cause you know what they act, we all, we always act like we have no power and like, you know, they're just going to do whatever the hell they want. And that's not true. Yeah. You can see that this week, can't you? Yeah. I mean, the last couple of weeks here, you can yeah. see that there, there's certainly a lot of power in the people when they kind of get together and do the accountability thing and ask questions and, and demand things. I mean, action, I mean, something happens. I don't know how, how things turn out or overreaction. I mean, who knows what the unintended consequences are, but that's all you can do is get it going. Do you think it comes from stuff like, I was thinking about a movie like Slumdog Millionaire or something. That has to change people's internal side so much more than a policy document or suggestion right. or proposal or, or a news story even like that. So there's some fusion. Um, and as it would pertain to the United States right now, if accountability is big, is it, do you see that this as a positive where we're at right now? So it's pretty tumultuous. Is this the beginning of accountability for us? Oh yeah. I think anytime people rise, it's always a positive. I never see it as a negative. Of course, um, uh, nonviolent action um, often has violent reaction. <laughs> so it's not something that uh, you can always control, but I think it's important that, you know, if, if, to know why you're in the streets or not, if, if you're not in the streets, why you're protesting, you know, why you're standing up, why you're rising, really understand why you have a really strong message. And I think as, as long as there's a strong unified message, um, uh, there's there's less of a chance of uh, outside forces um, sort of infiltrating a, 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 a legitimate cause. Um, and yeah, I think that the cat's out of the bag now and uh, people like we're having a collective awakening, just like my individual awakening in summer 2009. I don't I don't see people closing their eyes after <laughs> all this, especially the the reaction of the authorities to peaceful protests was just some of these videos, you know, are very traumatizing to watch. And I think um, I think Americans use human rights advocacy abroad as a way to sanitize domestic oppression. Sorry to say that uh, at home, particularly when it comes to issues around racial injustice. Um, so even when it comes to like, let's say the death penalty, um, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll have like, uh, Americans talk about like the American government and certain think tanks. They'll talk about, uh, that the fact that the Iranian authorities execute gays and, you know, the things that the Americans don't do, you know, but they're not going to talk about like the U S is one of the worst countries for execution. Like the, the fact that the U S has the death penalty, I, in my opinion is like, a terrible example for the world you know they, if the u.s wants to be the police of the world or like this 
wants to get on, you know, be this moral, moral voice of the world, they need to do better. You know, right. as a country, there's racial terror at home. Um, and uh, so we need to we need to we're in a we're in a very special moment that we need to seize because we we're, we need to reconcile. Uh, and I say we I'm living here. I'm Canadian. You know, I feel like it's all the same. And, you know, and we need to we need to look in the mirror and uh, we have to we have to see the America abroad and the America home. And, and see see the differences. We we have to realize that what's happening in Iran is not okay, um, and realizing that like we're complicit and part of the problem, but also at home, like you know, um, people need to realize how they've contributed to perpetuating this white supremacy system. All of us, including myself. Um, so I think that's important to do. I think too what you're saying. Um... For example, like when we talk about Iran, I know so little about it. And then growing up in the South and growing up very Christian, conservative and stuff, it feels like, uh, for example, Christianity and, and uh, the Mos- a Muslim religion, uh, they, they can't coexist. Or, you know, you're taught like that, that we're at war with each other or, you know, America's very or has been <clears throat> very pro-Israel. And, you know, supporting Israel or, or, you know, which which if we support Israel, oftentimes that feels like it even just within the media or whatever, puts you at odds with uh, Iran or, or, you know, uh, some of the, the leadership. And uh, I think, too, sometimes people feel intimidated because, like, for example, when you say, uh, like, a, a woman's headdress or a, a head covering, like a, a hijab, or I think it's how you, how you say that, um, I don't know if the women want to keep that and then change, they want to go to sports events or they would give up sports events. Maybe they don't want to wear. I think, like, what you were saying is if we can get more narratives and more story about what people actually want because i don't think people in iran want americans to come in start a war and try to change it all and make it like america i I think that there's probably a lot of uh things about iran that people want to keep and the way of life and the uh you know the history there and stuff like that but at the same time i think that we just don't know enough of the story to know how to help sometimes so that's i think you're right like if we if you can share some of the story like for example with george floyd uh, most people I know, I know there's some fools out there that'll ruin everything. But most people, when you see that video, your heart breaks and you go, "This person's murdered. He's 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 doing the best he can to say he can't breathe." And that story there, if if that's your father or your son or your brother, and if you can just see that video as, "Wait a minute, this this is our brother. This is our father. This is yeah. you know th- this is somebody like us." Then I think you actually it mobilizes people. It causes people to to once again start really risking even their own safety to maybe make change. And that's that's the thing that I think is the hardest because you're right. Sometimes I hear something on the news and I don't trust the news already. And so what? How do I decipher what's true and how do I help people with their rights when I don't actually know what you know? If the more I can hear about what they are wanting and like something so simple, like you said for. For ladies to be able to go watch sports, that that sounds like the simplest thing in the whole world to me. But it, it apparently it's not. You know, people are they, they can't even get something like that passed. And then here we can't even you know stop our police from murdering its citizens. And so it, it's really it feels so convoluted sometimes. It makes you feel really small. It makes you feel like uh, your little bit wouldn't do anything. But that's why I'm appreciative of of, of folks like you creating something like Seed Operations uh, to where it it really is kind of changing the way we tell the story and actually maybe helping us see it in a, in a new light, which is what I want. That is what I want. I want to hear things 
in real ways that move me, you know, to, to want to take action. Yeah, I think that you hit it. That's perfect. I think that's what it is. You know, you just got to see people as human beings. Uh, so when it comes to like, let's say the mandatory veiling issue, um, I'll give you an example of the quick root cause way of thinking about that, right? Um, okay, well, let's get to the root. Uh, what is the, the root issue here? The root issue here is uh, self-determination, the right to, to choose, Right. The right to choose if you wear hijab or you don't wear a veiling or you veil or no veil. Um, hijab means different things for different Muslims. Some Muslims don't believe hijab means a physical garment on your head. Some for many Muslims, hijab is the gaze, you know, being, you know, keeping your gaze down. And yeah. it's, it's a it's an internal thing. Um, it's for men and women. So it depends on who you're talking to. You know, Muslims are not a monolith either. So it's important that, you know, when you're dealing with human issues to not make it about culture, to not be afraid to talk about it. And I think that um, uh, throughout history with the, um, like the Western countries or, or like a lot of white communities, there's this like need to be at the forefront and to like find a solution. It's like, you don't need to do that. You just need to listen. You just need to white savior. Yeah, it's like yeah, so. Like this right. idea that you know you got to go into Iran and fix it. No, you don't need to do that. You need right. to listen. The same. That's like what are, what are they saying now? Just listen. Like you don't need white people at the front lines of these protests right now in the U.S. You need them just be there, be there, and listen and figure. Like just be there and support. You don't need to right. be at the front all the time. You know. Right. Yeah. Um. But 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 listen and 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 really listen to understand. And I think moving forward, what we need are spaces like, like public spaces or private spaces, but just way more of these spaces where Brown and black people, um, going back to the U S context can tell their stories and, and white people just need to listen to their pain and just like, well, they, they do when you get something as extreme as George Floyd. So I see there's just a giant gap there because, Okay, there's a story, there's a human, there's an undeniable narrative, there's a name. And that's why the name is so out there when we get to the when we get to everything from Trayvon Martin to George Floyd. That's why we say the name so much because you can't you could say systemic racism is a problem and here's the stats. Nobody cares. Yeah. Nobody cares. This right. guy, watch him strangle for nine minutes. It's 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 undeniable. It's it's crazy that we don't have much in between. Those two. Like, it's unfortunate that you have to get that story, that narrative, that piece of media. Yeah. I mean, it's the most viewed piece of media you can imagine right now. I mean, I don't really know where it is, but that's the media we consume. And we're, we consume it because it's outrageous or all those circuits we can't help. But, you know, I can't help but think there's got to be lots of media that could be created that doesn't have to be that reality-based. You don't have to get to that point. You don't have to watch a man die to get the same. There's a way to get at the root causes and the message. And I think that's a lot of times through conversation, art, entertainment, open-mindedness, introspection, self-reflection. You know, yes. we all know that those are buzzwords, but, I mean, that's, it's the time for the, there's Or we wait until there's a George Floyd, and then we have to do it this way. And but you it's, just can't wait anymore. Yeah. You can't wait for the next person to die or the next you know, exactly. uh, dictator to rise. Yeah, and, I mean, we know people. we'll eventually snap into action, but that's such a terrible yeah. mindset to avoid until you must. And that's the same thing with the damn virus. Right. It's like avoid it until you must take action, and then, then we will. But as humanity, can't we rise above transformatively and shoot that gap and try to get just get in between the ignorance and forced into action mode? It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Miriam, uh 
we'll, we'll probably go ahead and let you go. Man, this has been a, a very good conversation. Thank you so much. We'd love to have you back in the future and see more about what's going on with seed operations. Where, where can folks find you and any, anything, uh, in, any uh, place that you want them to go or to check out? Oh, um, we're, we're, we are working on some projects right now. Um, they're sort of, um, we're, we're not public about them yet. I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Um, so Miriam Nayib Yazd, it's my full name without the I at the end because of character limit on Twitter. Um, yeah, so I'm on Twitter, um, but more so our work is, uh, sort of, uh, we plant the seeds of change, so you're not really sure if it's us or not. <laughs> uh, I like it. Go birds. <laughs> yes. Well, I recommend That's following awesome. you as an example of just, you know, you, you present what I find to be a dynamic that's much different from the loudest forces of religion and activism, which I'm not saying there's no place for that either, but you, you know, it's, uh, like you said, it's more of long-term slow and you just model that really well so if nothing else just following you on on twitter and seeing how you're reacting and what you're putting out um is is really good modeling which is something i think we need thank you so much and uh, yeah definitely they can also follow the work of oslo women's rights initiative which in the next couple of months we're going to start getting that going again so oslo women's rights initiative we work with the nobel peace center in oslo and uh it's a wonderful initiative we're going to start doing some work around gender-based violence and uh, start introducing some new messaging around root cause. Uh, So that's going to be really exciting. Um, And I'm so thankful for this opportunity. Um, So thank you so much for having me. And I would love to come back again. Yeah, we appreciate. I, it. I, 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 I want to well. say one last thing too. That is, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to tell. Just uh, maybe in the future, if you can come back, I'd love to hear more about your like your mental health journey there. Like like uh. you, <laughs> you, like you talking about being in a literal closet. But like one of the things that people are the most scared of is being by themselves with their thoughts. And like yeah, the, yeah, the, totally. you know, you, you that's why we got to have our phone with us. We can't even yeah. be in the bathroom without that's our right. phone because if it's just us and our brain, oh my gosh! But but facing that, I mean, you really do have to do that work. I mean, uh. you have to do that work to find who you are and all that stuff and so that that is really helpful i think that'd be helpful to our listeners too so thanks for even sharing a little bit of that oh i'd love to yeah that's stuff i'm still processing but it's a very painful journey i don't recommend it (laughs) but it's necessary you know like you need pain to grow so yes you do yeah the pain avoidance is the story with the opiates and the addiction and the outrage and the phones and the distraction those are all forms we're all trying to avoid i feel so yeah you you going straight into the pain there is just it's just wonderful yeah. Thank you for yeah. being an example of that. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate right. it. Thanks, Mary. I hope you have a good rest of the day. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Um, I really enjoyed that. Uh, I'm really glad she came on. Um, I'm, I want to, I, I think one of the things that she said that really is true, and this is maybe even what we're trying to do uh, to an extent, like people, I, I think where we got it wrong some is just being angry, for example, at the church. We started Bad Christian, and you're just mad about what happened, right? Mm-hmm. But we, when you start telling stories, you know, hey, well, this is what actually happened to me. Then people can go, oh, well, that, they raise their hand. That, that actually happened to me, too, mm-hmm. or I can understand. Th- then you actually, I think creating narrative is a big part of that. That's one of the reasons I think she wanted to come on. Uh, she mentioned that in her email, uh, some of the stuff that, that we've done. But I, I think that is really true. Like uh, the documentary we're working on, Matt, you you full lead, taking all the control and working on it really hard. Um, me and James. Yeah, you and James. James Whiteman. Yeah, don't, don't leave James. He's done more uh, than I have. No, he'll, he'll send me a hateful email. <laughs> um the that is 
telling a story. And, oh, sorry. Reva's done a shitload of work on the oh, documentary. Oh, God, we left Reva out, too? My God. <laughs> I, James has done by far the most work, and then Reva and I have done a lot of work. Okay. And then so many other people have done a lot of work, too. But yeah. that's that just, you know. Everybody but me. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea there will be to tell a story, and then people might can understand a little bit. What would Jesus sell, or what does that mean, or what, what are you talking about? Or uh, Christian music's bad? I got saved to a Christian song. Right. Or you know what I mean? Like, like yeah. you got to tell the story, and then people go, oh, I see what you're saying. I mean, that's well, people why the Bible say, but, is written what's practical? in stories, right? What do I need? What's my takeaway? What do I need? Do I have to right. do anything? No, I don't. I do? I don't. Is it me? Right. Is it me? Is it my fault or not? Right. All right, moving on. Like, that's but where that, that's everybody's saying, always at. Scripture is best told in stories. That's what it was meant to be, a story and, and how figuring it out, and not all of it is good, or you should follow. You, you got to just hear a story and then figure out what is good and true and right and what what can be taken away and all that stuff. And so I think that's really important. That's what I'm saying. Like my whole life with Iran or Iraq is is mostly uh I've always heard it's it's a dangerous place. Don't go there. Thank God we don't live there. That's yeah. or, to most of the extent because nobody yeah. nobody none of my family members taught me about Iran. Yeah, you think they ever, no, you know it's what just I mean? used like, as a way to say, "See, you have it good. At least you don't have it like those suckers in Iran." I know that's why you need to not complain, right, Toby? I know. And, and good she thing you're not in Iran, and that's yeah. I think she's really system. right about that too. I think we do use that. Hey, listen, if you live there, look how bad it would be. So you better be happy right. you live in America. Don't complain but, about my parenting or my right. government or whatever it is. You right. better just be happy to eat, get what I give you. Right, and then and then you just what submit to some system that isn't healthy yeah, and right. you can't change it just because maybe maybe in some ways it's better. Right, you know That's what I mean. A super good point. Yeah. So super anyway, I'm really point. glad you came on. Um, thank you guys for listening today. We'll, we'll go ahead and get on off of here. Uh, I'll give a quick shout out to the BC Club. Last week's episode, it was BC Clubbers. They are good people trying to do good stuff, and they screw up just as much as you and me. And oh, that's way, more, cool way, more, uh, way more, way yeah, more, way more. Yeah, they probably screw up way more, at least me and Matt. But uh, they are, they're good people. They support this podcast. They help Very us keep, keep the lights on here. And uh, if, if you've been listening to this show and haven't uh, been a part of the BC Club, why wait? Why not go ahead and take an opportunity and do that today? Um, we sure would appreciate it. The club would appreciate it. And uh, if you have some uh, good thoughts and want to be challenged, it's a good place to be, I think. So, uh, yeah, join the BC Club today. Uh, Matt, you got any closing comments or a no, prayer you want to pray for us? No, or? I don't. I don't. I'm very far from any spiritual anymore. awakening to pray. When's the last no. time you prayed? Twenty. It depends on what 11? you count as prayer, my friend. <laughs> I, I tried it. Um, I I did a prayer. I prayed. I tried to pray in this real honest way. Sometime very recent. I can't remember exactly what the yep. circumstance was. I was like trying to remember. Can I really pray sincerely and do it and mean it? And I think I fell asleep. But I. <laughs> Did try, but I mean, I, I'm trying to just look at it. I'm not shunning prayer or God or anything like that, but I am, th- I, it sounds so stupid to say it, but I, sp- I try to do something closer to meditation where it's not as narrative focus based. Yeah. It's a little more woo woo, is the, is the, but I, I have, I very much am increasing the amount I feel that there's a spirituality or re- religious like. Uh, meditation and calmness and prayer, and some people right. think that's non-Christian. But I, that's not the terms I think of it in. But um, I, I am in some kind of, I have some kind of interest in in, in that, and it's not exclusive from or, or necessarily different from what I would call prayer. But it's not the 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 way I used to pray. I'll put it that way. But uh, I do think maybe we have a BC Club commercial if oh, uh, if we can nice. kick one of those, and we'll just get on out of here. Very cool.
a commercial is a testimonial, like give your testimony. Like, yeah. you know, in, in any case, all I'm saying is I tried to get away from re- certain religious things that you call it deconstruction, but that is c- completely, uh, ultimately not going to, to work. Uh, the way people talk about, I'm not getting into this whole topic. I'm just saying the religious context for how humans think is, I see more as a component to science and that right. kind of analytical thing. You, there's definitely both. You will unavoidably engage in uh, well, scientific type thinking and religious type thinking if you want to be a whole person. You're gonna have to figure that shit out. There yeah. is there, so you got to figure out what the terms and what it means and what you're really talking about. But there's some things we have to deal with in our society that we don't have anywhere near a scientific granularity right. to work on it. We're gonna have to do it religiously about meaning and well, feeling and what we believe. I mean, that is right. the level we're going to have to engage well, in. Just, so just no like uh, Miriam said, I, I've been thinking of this. Maybe we'll talk about this in the next few episodes or something. I've been thinking about this thought of obsessive compulsive Christianity. Like we've been taught, we use these terms deconstruction on stuff, but like I was taught, read your Bible, pray, do all this stuff. And I pray so much less than I used to. And now my prayers are the most real they've ever been. Mm-hmm. When I do pray, it's like, Oh, I got to talk. I, I, I'm not. I'm not being obsessive compulsive. Is is the money there in my bank account? Let me check my bank account one more time. Oh wait, did I, did I lock the door? Did I lock it? Uh, let me. Did I read the Bible? Uh, if I read the Bible, it'll be fine, right? But like all yeah, that right, stuff, right. there isn't anything real. The reason I keep checking it and doing it, the reason people keep going back to God so much, is because to try and prove it. But I feel to more secure about God now. Others, I, I, yeah. I, it's not that I'm going to God less. It's that I'm going to God in a real way. Yeah, like and, you know what I mean. So when I pray. God, you know this is real. I'm not, I'm not fake. I'm not bullshit. I'm not just throwing one up to say I prayed. I, I prayed today, read my scripture. Man. No, mm-hmm. no, that's that was all a lie. That was just to make me prove I was a Christian. What is that? I don't to want yourself, to prove I'm a right? Christian. The thing I want to prove is, is is God and I in relationship. Who gives a shit about the Christian thing anymore? What are we talking about? <laughs> and this obsessive compulsive thing where I was yeah. that's what I was just drilled in my head. You got to do it. You got to do this. This is the kind of man you got to be. This kind of woman you got to be. Get out of here. Y'all are just doing that because you don't really believe it. You know, you don't think that the money's in the bank account, so you got to check it again and again and again, or you might have screwed up. Or it, it, wait, hold on, it's there. I, it's I'm past war, all that. It feels I'm, like it's to I'm ward off there. the boogeyman in a lot of cases when you say that what it means to be this or that, and how right. you know it's like I have to do all these things, or else there's this hidden boogeyman that'll come get me, and right. my marriage will fall apart, or this will fall apart, or I'll lose this, or I'll lose my salvation, all that stuff. Right. That is uh, close to OCD territory. I think you're right. Maybe religious guilt and OCD go together. Yeah, religious guilt. Maybe that's what it is. But All right, let's play the clubber. Thank you, guys. We'll talk to y'all later. Praying for you. This is Zach from York, Pennsylvania, and I've been in the BC Club for three years. When I joined the club, I did it to support the podcast, and I had little interest in the club that they always talked about. But when I joined the Facebook group, I found a community that I don't think I can live without now. There are support systems run by the members ourselves, to help with depression and mental illness and life as an LGBTQ person and so many more. When I joined the Marco Polo groups in the last few months, I found the relationships I forged online to go much deeper, having one-on-one, face-to-face conversations with all these amazing people uh, for hours. You might think that you're giving a few dollars a month just to support the podcast, and that's cool. I think they deserve it. But the community is one that I'll never lose. It's been life-changing, to say the least. Jesus Christ, where were you when his knee was on it?
stood together for a moment forgot about ourselves we made the future we made the Cause we 